depending on who you ask, there's two to three, maybe four billion people across the planet who have yet to start consuming at the per capita GDP level that you and I, the three of us are consuming. And they want shoes and light bulbs and washing machines and- Continents of people. That's right. The Highly Capable Podcast by Galtway Industries is the premier podcast for firsthand accounts of the manufacturing and supply chain spaces told by highly capable, accomplished and proficient people. Exploring all types of personalities and industries, our goal is to highlight the people who have risen to the top of their space and try to identify what sets them apart. If you have any questions, nominations, or suggestions, please reach out to us on the Highly Capable Podcast page on LinkedIn or at podcast at galtwayindustries.com. The Highly Capable Podcast by Galtway Industries is proudly sponsored by the following companies. Visit galtwayindustries.com for more information. Lucchini Mamei Forge, the largest steel mill and most competent forging company in Italy, producing turnkey open die steel forgings from three to 35 tons and some of the largest steel castings in the world, up to 300 tons. POK Foundry, a Nucor company based in Guadalajara, Mexico, a turnkey precision sand and investment casting producer with over 125 years in the industry, producing steel castings from one to 12,000 pounds. S&S Industries, a Houston-based coating and plating solutions company that delivers best-in-class quality and service to increase the durability of oil field, power generation, power transmission, and automotive equipment. Express Bolt and Gasket, the premier provider of fastener solutions in Texas. Express has over 90,000 square feet of warehouse space for imports, as well as in-house manufacturing of fasteners, gaskets, studs, and bolts. Certified to API Q1 and 20E with unmatched quality and customer service. Oklahoma Forge. Forged steel rings rolled the right way, fast, on time, and with the utmost integrity. Oklahoma Forge also produces open die forgings quoted the same day with an average delivery time of less than two weeks and over 97% on time. Riganti Forge. One of Europe's leading closed die forging companies with turnkey capabilities since 1891. Any grade of steel, from 33 to 3,300 pounds, produced for industries such as oil and gas, transportation, mining, power generation, and many others. Marmon Inc., one of North America's largest and most capable manufacturing partners with unmatched machining, fabrication, assembly, and project management capabilities for the oil and gas, mining, power gen, infrastructure, maritime, and wind industries. Marmon delivers more than parts we deliver manufacturing solutions. Visit GaltwayIndustries.com for more information. Welcome back to another episode of the Highly Capable Podcast by Galway Industries. I've got here Robert Husband again. How are you, Frank? I'm excellent. I, um, well, I've noticed that we've had a couple of LSU Tigers on the show. Yeah, I do the scheduling, so I'm not sure how that keep ha keeps happening. But I know that you are. I'm secretly. You're an alumni. Putting these guys in there, yeah. Putting your, your hand to the wheel, but right. uh, we've got another one here. We do. In the the one and only Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio. Yes. It's uh, it's never too early for tequila, but we couldn't quite. Especially if you're from LSU. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Especially yeah. from LSU. <laughs> but uh, today we've got a really cool guest here. I, I, I he's a friend of a friend, but um, as I'm diving deeper, this is this is entirely relevant to our current scenario. Yes. So, um, everybody, welcome Mush Khan. 
Thank you so much. How are you? Thank you for coming on the I'm podcast. I'm doing great. Yeah, go Tigers. Go Tigers. Yes, and you're right. It's never too early for tequila, especially <laughs> if you're yeah. Yeah, an LSU Tiger. Especially after last season. I mean, we could certainly yeah, use. Yeah, I mean, I think there's nothing but tequila right. after last season. So you're season. not only a Tiger, you actually put on the football uniform. I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and so I was a very unsuccessful walk-on at LSU. And so I played I played place kicker in high school and was a walk-on at LSU. And uh, it was so much fun. So how did, much how fun. did that happen? By the way? Completely by accident. So so I was in gym class when I was in the 10th, 10th grade mm-hmm. in high school at East St. John, Louisiana. East St. John High School in Louisiana. And uh, we were just goofing around, and and uh, and someone put a football on a tee, and I kicked it soccer style. So that was back in 1983, you know, back in the dark ages. And so, uh, and it, I don't know if you guys probably don't remember, but that's when a lot of people were really kicking straight ahead, not soccer style. Right, right. they didn't cock to the side. But that's right, yeah. And so I kicked it that way, and one of the football coaches saw it and said, hey, do you normally kick that way? And I was like, how else would you kick besides that way? Right. You know, and so... So he said, hold on a second. So he went out and got a real football and real tee and lined up like a 30-yarder, and I kicked it, and he said, you're coming on the football team. No so, kidding. Yeah. Wow. It's like anything else I do. It's There's no plan ever. It's just, just complete. Wing it. Just wing it. Why not? You know, and I where think, was this? Where where did you go East St. John, Louisiana. So in, uh, East St. John, which is in Reserve, Louisiana. You got that Cajun accent. I do. Completely Cajun <laughs> accent. Yeah. 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 Slash South Texas. Right. Slash Houston. Yeah. Whatever slash- that is. England slash England, yeah, yeah. yeah. So but you're isn't that Houston though? Houston, Houston people are from everywhere. It's That's a what melting pot of just everywhere. It really is. I mean, it's an international city. It's a national city, and I think that's one of the things that makes Houston so incredible is that um, there there are so many people like me and you guys who who are here, and I think it makes us a powerful place. I, it really, I, you know, we travel a lot. I think we went to. We were looking at the stats. We went to as you know as a company, Galway yeah. Industries. We went to two hundred and. 17 cities in 2019 before the world collapsed yeah. and travel stopped. But, yeah. you know, so we, we get around, we cover North America and everything. And we, we talk to, we tell people we're from Houston and, you know, obviously the stereotypes exist, but I don't right. think people realize how multicultural it is. There's a lot of expats, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of transplants. Yeah, and, and, for sure. Yeah. You know, this, you know, obviously we have big oil and gas, but also medical. So we, we bring people from all over the world. Mm-hmm. We just want the That's best right. and brightest. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, I, I like to I like to think, and I do do think is, this is true, that Houston, and I've traveled too like you guys and internationally right. for work and otherwise, um, I think Houston is as close to a real meritocracy that I've ever found. And so, you know, when I started my career, I was a, a, a baby engineer in the oil and gas industry working in a chemical plant. Um, in in Pasadena, Texas. And so I'd walk into a a control room full of guys who are from Pasadena, Texas, uh, looking like I do, sounding like I do. And none of those guys cared about that. (laughs) They cared about what can you do? Are you honest, hardworking? Are you competent? Do you follow through on what you do? To me, that's that's Houston. I know that's not 100% true of Houston, but I think that's more true true of this place than any other place that I've found. And, and that's why I think if, if you want to build a company, build a life, change the world, this is the place you do it because no one's going to stand in your way. And, and I'm going <laughs> to tie into that. Yeah. The reason we call this the Highly Capable Podcast is because we – we want to showcase people that are capable. We don't care your, you know, what your background right, is or who right. you are. Like, can you can you execute when given a task? That's right. And if you do it well, we want to hear from you. That's so, right. Yeah, I love it. So I want to know where you came from. Um, obviously, yeah. we'll get to where you are now. I, I really want to get into the the additive manufacturing. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah, a yeah. big shiny star. In, yeah. In my yeah. Eyes, big time. Yeah. So so you were. Uh, 
way back when you were a place kicker and right. then you uh so you I went to LSU yeah. and uh just because most of my buddies were going to LSU I wish I could say that I thought about it a lot more than that but that was <laughs> my rationale yeah uh ended up um uh in Baton Rouge and and um and fortunately uh besides studying engineering or trying to study study engineering I was a walk-on and you know I love that experience because um just being around really incredible athletes, I think, gives you an idea of what re being really good at something looks like, you know, and you see it. And I remember guys, uh, you know, uh, a linebacker who 220 pounds, which was big back then. Now the you know, 250, 260. Yeah, that's, a, that's a cornerback, right? It's a cornerback. That's right. But still big compared to me. I mean, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're a linebacker inside. Right. You know, yeah, but, yeah. but so watching the, a guy like that move his body and knowing, God, that, I can't do that with my, with my body. There's talent and hard work. And so I remember that. Uh, really well as my experience on on the football team, and and I did dress out for one game. There was zero percent chance that I was going to play. I need to make that clear. Probably an offensive lineman would have kicked an extra point before me, but you know uh, it was still a wonderful experience to be around that and and running onto the field and in in between Full the band. stadium and Tiger Stadium yeah, it was Saturday just, night. Yeah. That's an experience. Yeah, yeah. come on. Less than point one percent of people being get to do. A visitor, you that's know, right. or just sitting in that's there. That's right. And, yeah. yeah. So I love LSU. Yeah. You know, I think that what's not to love, right? Sure. Right. Okay. And, uh, that's I yeah. Love LSU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were we were talking before we started recording. Like we're all we're all like dining off the caucus of 2019. Right. You know, which which is fine by me. Yeah. Yeah. We've deleted 2020. For obvious reasons. Yeah. I don't even follow LSU, but I have an old roommate that was a tiger. And yeah. you know, of course, I get every update you yeah. know, every Saturday, so I follow it vicariously. Yeah, good, good for you. Yeah, we'll welcome you to the tribe. I'll, I'll come. It's yeah, fine. It seems fun. There's a painful initiation ceremony, though. You should have to <laughs> Life is pain right now. Life I have a newborn. is pain, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I ended up uh, at LSU. Then graduated um, with a degree in mechanical engineering and. Um, Got hired off campus, fortunately went to go work for a wonderful company, uh, which is now part of another company. But um, back then it was a company called Arco Chemical, which was Atlantic Richfield's chemical business. Now it's part of the Lyndell Bacell group. Um, and what I remember about that particular experience is that the, the people that I worked for were incredible for young engineers. They gave you big assignments, definitely had to sink or swim. Uh, and fortunately I swam more than I sunk, although I did sink a few times. Uh, a little bit of water in the lungs is okay. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I had to get pumped out a few times. And so uh, and so one of my most memorable experiences of that, that time was uh, I was working on a project and totally messed it up, kind of like epically failed at doing it and was costing the company a tremendous amount of money. And I was sitting in my office uh, at the time. I was maybe 23 years old, completely devastated because I felt like I'd failed. And, um, and you think that that time, I, we all have catastrophic failures, but of course. you think that you're surely the only one that's done that's this. That's right. That's what it feels like. Yeah. That's what it feels like. And so, um, so I remember sitting in my office and the plant manager at the time, his name is Doug Mathera, and he, uh, he was a West Virginia coal miner's son, didn't say much when he spoke. You know, you really listened to him because it had a tremendous impact. And so so he came in my office and, and he never called me by my first name. Always called me Khan and said, Khan, what's going on? And I said, well, Doug, you know, I did this and it totally screwed up. And of course, he knew about it because it was like, you know, not a good thing. And so he just looked at me and all he said was, uh, don't worry, I'd buy Khan stock. That's all he said. And He's I meant buying low. in that moment. But yeah, in that moment, I was good. 
I knew that, okay, this guy's going to invest in me. And to me, that's also the Houston story, you know, that, that that's the way that I was treated as a young engineer. And, and, uh, uh, the reality is I'm so lucky that with Doug Mathera is in, in my world and back then. And, um, and that really hasn't had an impact on me as a leader too, that that's what I want to be. I hope some version of that for the people that, work for me yeah to to remember to always you know try to reach down or reach back yeah. and, and pull yeah. somebody else out that's right everyone's struggling right. with something at any given time you know and uh and why not help them out i think it's it's um i don't believe in a zero-sum game of opportunity i think that you know the more you can help sometimes even your competitors uh, that or what you think are your competitors they don't have to be defined that way and so um so that was my beginning in my career. Very, very lucky. So you're young, you're, you're messing up chemical plants. Left and right. <laughs> Leaving Left a trail right. of despair. Yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and destruction. somebody believes in, that's right. in Comstock and they, yeah, they, and they here, buy in. And that's then, right. And then here. where do you go from there? Well, so then I, uh, I um, had a bunch of great assignments at, at Arco and, and worked for other folks that, were, that treated me extraordinarily well and, and gave me um, big jobs to do, which were very, very hard. And I would say this to any young person starting out, move towards the difficult jobs, the ones that aren't very sexy, the ones that do have potential failure, because that's where all the value add can be for you. And, and don't do it alone. I mean, find help and ask questions and be open. You know, don't be an arrogant young engineer. And there are plenty of them. I was one of them. Um, and so um, and so I think that's really important to to seek out those kinds of opportunities, which I, I did and had great people, as I said, around me and and, and uh, had a wonderful career at uh, Arco Chemical. And so when how when was that? That was um, so from 1990 to about 2000. So okay. nine or 10 years and felt like 20 years. Um, but but only because it was a very intense experience. Uh, in a good way, very intense experience. Uh, so most of my work there was around reliability engineering and turnaround management and, you know, those kinds of things. And so um, that's when I really cemented my love for working for and with people who are sort of skilled blue collar professionals. Pipe fitters, welders, machinists. People that make things. People that make things. And, mm -hmm. and my dad, my dad who's retired now was a pipe fitter. Uh, my mother was a seamstress. And so I, I grew up in that environment. So that was or, already love in my veins mm -hmm. for, for people like that with my parents. And so, um, so that really has, has informed how I want to work and what difference I'm, I want to make is particularly for those kinds of people. And, um, so where'd you go from, from there after so 2000? I, I went to go work for a much smaller company, uh, called Delta Petroleum. Mm -hmm. And um, they were building a facility in Houston, chemical packaging and logistics facility. That was my first general manager job at around uh, 29 or 30 years old and had to build a team and build the facility and, and lead, the, lead the business. And so that was remarkable. Uh, that business was later on bought out by a private equity group. So that gave me some experience and exposure to the world of private equity and acquisitions and, ac yeah, and how yep. all that stuff works, and which was a great, the, the PE group called Riverside Capital. Uh, co-founded by Stuart Cole, uh, an amazing group. Uh, and I got to, I got to tell you my, my background and my experience has been, has been filled with incredible people and companies like that. And I, I, I didn't create any of it. I think some of it's luck. Uh, some of it might not be, but, um, uh, so Riverside Capital was a great, great, uh, group of people too. And so, 
So after that, um, uh, that's when I really began uh, my career that was more entrepreneurial in nature. So this is when you started um, your own lane, but like what, yeah. what was the catalyst to that jump? Just something, an itch well, you needed to scratch I, or? I think for me, um, and what um, was the first venture? Yeah. So the, so there were several, but, um, for me, I'm always fascinated by white space and, and that what could we build within, in that white space? I love not having any kind of constraints or rules and, you know, which, which is hard to do and, and hard to be, um, in reality to, to maintain that. But, so um, those experiences early on, even with Acro Chemical, I was normally in new groups doing new things. And I just love that. And, and it was really hard and it still is very hard. But so, um, so that's what really inspired me to go build things, whatever they may be, uh, teams, companies, physical products, whatever they might be. Um, so then I moved on, uh, ran a company called O'Rourke Petroleum for about 10 years, a fuels and lubricants distribution business. And, and our team uh, was able to grow that business. I learned a lot in leading a scaled up company like that. And, and you, so the, this is, you know, obviously manufacturing supply chain. You, yeah. How can you touch on what kind of, of diverse supply chain you're dealing with? I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming it was multinational. I mean, yeah, did you have a hand very, in that? Yeah, O'Rourke was very much a Texas company. Mm -hmm. Um, but with a lot of supply chain um, issues, so like any any distribution business, it is a supply chain right. company. It's pure and so, supply chain. Yeah, you're buying other people's stuff and and selling it. Um, so we learned how to add value to other people's products. Um, so so one of the products that O'Rourke sold was diesel. Diesel is diesel, wherever you go. Yeah, how do you add value to diesel? Yeah, and so I think you have to think about everything comes from the customer's perspective and really trying to understand what's important to the customer. And I, I don't think it's ever just the physical product or delivery or quality. All those things are important. But what's the experience that they want to have? What are the problems that they want to have? So um, we uh, during the time at O'Rourke, we, we launched a marine business. And so one of the things about, I remember about that experience is that our team, as we were launching it, was spending a lot of time with marine customers and just asking lots of questions. And I think you have to ask a lot of questions. And, and my belief is that customers will rarely tell you what is important to them. Uh, and in fact, if they can beautifully articulate what's important, they're telling everybody else. That's not where the opportunity is. Right. The, the opportunity, I think, is trying to read between the lines and figure out wh where's the unmet demand, where's the the problem that a customer has kind of given up on anyone that's solving for them. Interesting. That's where the gold is, and uh, and it's hard, but that's where the gold is. And so with O'Rourke Marine, one of the things we learned was, and this is going to sound so obvious after I say it, but they were interested in boat turnaround time. They wanted to come fuel and get get the hell out of there. You know, they didn't want delays or anything else strictly on the fuel up that's right yeah just like you and i we go into a gas station we want to be in and out right unless it's bucky's yeah nobody's there to hang out that's right right uh, you're right unless, unless it's bucky's, bucky's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is like plan a day around bucky's yeah. but uh which is also a great story on customer experience um and for those of you not in texas if you ever come to texas I would say that's one of our national historic sites. It is, is the various Bucky's. Yeah, that's Come on right. down. You got to go to Bucky's. You have to. Got to go to Bucky's. Anyway. So, so anyway, uh, so we we discovered that through asking questions. They never use those words, but that's what they seem to say. And so we organized our entire business and operations around getting a boat in and out quickly. The way we communicated with them, the way we configured the barges, 
all those kinds of things. And so, wow. you know, so that was, um, uh, that was a great experience too. Um, as we built that company, um, I left that business, uh, I think it was around, I think it was around 2013 or 2014, somewhere around there. Okay. Um, and then went to go work for a, a private equity backed um, company in the safety glove business. Um, Ringers, right? Ringers. That's Are we right. To, to shout out specific yeah, companies. Yeah, that's right. Here? A great company, great business. Uh, owned by uh, at the time by a private equity group here in Houston. So I do have to say we're sponsored by Tomahawk Gloves. That's so right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a little partial, but you should be. Yeah, great gloves. <laughs> great gloves by Tomahawk. And so, um, uh, and so. Uh, that was a wonderful experience too, because that's when I really learned about international supply chains. And so, because you, you guys were getting it made all over the place, China right? and Indonesia, okay, um, and and a few other places. And so, um, and it's a big name, you know. Th that that must have been a lot of a lot of hands you got you were covering back we then. We were, yeah, and um, and it was invent the the product was really the category was invented by this guy Kenny Donald Dolanak, who who founded Ringers Gloves, who who passed away a few years ago. Um, so I learned a lot from Kenny and, and product design and, you know, how all that stuff worked. And, and, um, again, another long line of incredible teachers for me as Kenny was. And so these are pretty big shifts, right? You I mean, yeah. you start yeah. kicking footballs, but yeah. <laughs> you go to a, you know, chemical plant right. and then, then you go into, you know, lubricants and, yeah. and, and yeah. fuels and things and then gloves. Yeah. Well, I think the common thread is the people, the the people that we're making stuff for, that's yeah. a common thread. The people that are working in those businesses, you know. The, um, it doesn't matter what the the product is, essentially, it's, it's more more the environment. And, and I think so. For do. me, it is. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it is. Um, maybe not for other people, but certainly for me, it is. And so, so with Ringers, I spent time in China and Indonesia um, working on supply chain issues what in the like? factories. Uh, it was great. I mean, I loved being in China. Um, it really pushed me as a professional. Did you actually, did you live over there? No, I didn't live over there. Spend but a lot of time? Yeah, I would go over there just to work with the factories that were over there. So all the manufacturing. I've never been, but I've heard amazing things about it just is. the scale of what they do it over is. there. It is. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's so different. Although I think it's um, just like the rest of the world, it's becoming a bit more homogeneous, which is a bit mm -hmm. of a shame, I think. But, you know, I want to land in a city and know I'm in a different place. That's mm -hmm. becoming harder and harder to right. find. Yeah, instead of, you know, there's a... Chick-fil-A out the window. Yeah. Like you arrive and you see McDonald's and, Ch and Chick-fil-A right. or whatever. And, you know, a little piece of you probably dies when you see that. So like a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also a little piece of you is very happy too. Yeah. yeah. So safety net. Safety net. That's yeah. right. A little bit. But, you know, yeah. you're right though. It, it does feel nice to, to, I like to feel that culture shock a Me little too. bit. Um, you know, we, we go to Italy quite a bit, you mm -hmm. know, our, some of our sponsors and, and partners are over there. Yeah. And they recently got their first Starbucks. Oh wow! And, and Milan, not in Italy as a whole, yeah. but in Milan where we go, yeah. and uh, it was slammed for for months. It's over a great there. brand. I mean, it's a great brand, but at the same time, you know, if I go to Milan, uh, that's one of the last places I'm going. Right, is Starbucks. Oh, yeah, you want some, some yeah. Italian yeah. coffee? Is Italian the best. coffee. <laughs> Holy yeah. smokes, that's the best. We are very spoiled over here. My but, nephew uh, got married uh, summer of 2019 in in Italy, and and so on the way back out, had a coffee at, at the airport and Naples. And even that was like they do the right. best coffee they do it right. in the world. Yeah. So, um, so there, it is different and China was different. So is different. I think, um, one of, one of the remarkable experiences, uh, that I had over there, a few of them was trying to work with, um, 
the Chinese nationals on Im improving operations. And, you know, w what I learned from that was the that manufacturing, the manufacturing, like physically yeah. making. That's right. So yeah. you actually had a hand in their processes and procedures. I tried to, um, I tried to, um, what I also learned was that I had a very Western mindset going in and an underappreciation under appreciation of the sort of cultural realities. So for example, in an American, American company, People, you know, are downsizing and upsizing and changing organizations all the time. In China, at least where I was, I don't know if it's true of all of China, um, was that you could introduce automation, for example, but that could displace people. Sure. And that person, one of the people that you're displacing could be the factory owner's nephew's best friend or, you know, cousin's son or whatever the case might be. And so the changes, I think, were a little bit more difficult to make, but... Is that just because they're more interwoven or, or they I have more concern so. for human capital? Uh, I, I don't know. It's probably all of that. But they're all people just like over here. I think it's just the familial ties within a company where I was, where I was working there were probably more pronounced. Gotcha. And so, again, that was my one experience. China's a billion plus people. So, you know, that was my, <coughs> excuse me, my one tiny experience there. One of the other fun, fun professional experiences I had was... I was telling a story to a friend the other day. I was doing a negotiation on a new agreement. And uh, um, it was in Indonesia, in central Indonesia, kind of a rural place. And so um, so we were sitting around the table. There was a Chinese national. There was me, a, a guy from the Philippines, Indonesians, someone from Hong Kong, and maybe one other, one other person from another country. And so we were negotiating this agreement in multiple languages, with all these translations happening and it, it's pretty intense. it was intense and it took about eight hours to get done what would here be probably 20 minute conversation. Wow. But here's what I loved about that was that it forced me to simplify my language and clarify my ideas and be very straightforward and clear because I knew that whatever I was saying was going to get translated from from English to... Yeah, it's going to go to a washing machine and translations. Right, to and English to Chinese to Korean. Right. So that's a lot of p failure points along the way. Right, yeah. You know, if I said something that yeah. was really screwed up, then I could easily create a problem in the relationship. And so, no need for a lot of colorful words. It's, no need, yeah, this is the yeah, colloquialisms, none of that right. stuff. And you know, I had to, I had to, I had to suppress my inner in LSU tiger and, and yeah. all that stuff. So, uh, which was hard to do. And so, is that do they have do they have a different approach? Yeah, and again, I hate to generalize. That's okay. When we talk about Indonesia, three mm -hmm. billion people right. in China. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some some cultural issues, but yeah. is there is there one jarring uh, difference between maybe yeah. Houston LSU versus? Well, I think it's um, I think you have to respect that other countries are on a journey of their own, um, and that their mindset may not be exactly what, the way we think about business here, which doesn't make it wrong. Um, in some cases we may really want to get something done quickly. I think one of that was one of the things around speed. You know, I was trained to like get stuff done. Let's get it done. Let's, you know, we got the next thing to do. And um, those experiences really caused me to slow down a little bit, which I think anyone that's worked with me would knows that that's, you know, that's like kryptonite to me to slow down. <laughs> it's a losing battle. Yeah, it's a losing battle. So, um, and so I think that was probably the most important thing that I learned there was really 
Is, pay, pay it's attention. more of a, an experience or there's other things, other roses to smell besides Correct. just get to the next point. You know, at the end of the day, they're all people. They, they are all trying to make a good life for themselves and their families. And you've got to figure out, well, how do I help play a role in that, positive role in that? If you can, sometimes you can, sometimes you can, sometimes right. you, you can't. But um, did, you, did you get the deal done, I guess? I got the deal done. Eight hours. Yeah. I, I'd, have, I'd have agreed to anything at that yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there probably for, I think, four or five days uh, all together and, and, you know, another four or five days or six days in, in China. So that was Ringers? That was Ringers, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then um, so left Ringers and um, so uh, when I – by that time I'd really – begun to think about manufacturing and how important that was to me um, and, and the reasons why it was important to me. And so, so that was around, um, that was around four years ago, three or four years ago. Uh, and, and I was turning 50. So I'm a hundred years older than both of you combined. And so, uh, turning 50 and, and really began to think about, um, how I wanted to spend the next sort of block of my life professionally and personally. Um, and so I went to an event called Abundance 360 hosted by Peter Diamandis and Peter Diamandis founded the X prize that I would say yeah. kind of kicked off the modern day space race. Um, and so, and Peter who, uh, who I've met now several times, um, is such a transformative guy. And, and one of the things that he talked about during this event was come up with a 25 year plan. And when I first heard that, I was like, holy shit, 25 year plan. You know, I'm thinking about next month and this guy's talking about 25 years. And so, so the timing was really great for that message to come into me. And so he, he also talks about, well, what is your massive uh, transformative purpose? What is the thing that you want to change in the planet that's deeply important to you? Um, the other, the other concept that he talked about was, um, uh, if you want to, if you want to be a billionaire, help a billion people. Wow. Which is, I mean, think about that. Yeah. It's such an incredible framing for how you work on things. And what I love about that is it is rooted in delivering value for somebody else. Yeah, it really helps pull you off the grindstone it a does. little bit. And, that's right. And, and realize that's, that's pretty <laughs> profound, actually. It's very yeah. profound. And so, so I, that was kind of kicking around in my head a lot. And so after that... I'd like to just help a few million people. Yeah, yeah. that's right. But why not help a billion? You <laughs> a billion can do would be it. Great. Yeah. I mean, think about this podcast and think about who you could impact and think about who they could impact. A bit of a butterfly effect. That's right. Yeah, I mean, maybe. you're a couple of orders of magnitude away from a billion people. Maybe we can cause some hurricanes. Yeah, that's right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let's we're cause a hurricane. Actively doing. Let's flap our wings together. Let's everybody. go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're all flapping our wings right now. It looks really strange, but. Uh, <laughs> And so I came back from that. It was in Los Angeles. I came back from that and spent a couple of days really writing down what I wanted to do. And so from that, uh, I wrote down uh, my moonshot, was, which was to um, change the lives, positively change the lives of a, a billion industrial workers around the planet over the next 25 years. Oh. Which, I mean, even today when I say it, it... it it's it's rocket fuel for me and i think about my parents and i think about uh piper is like my dad and seamstress is like my mother and the guys that, and, and women that i've worked with um over the years and and um it's a it, it's a remarkable and awesome opportunity to try to make that kind of a difference and i don't know i don't know if i'm going to do it I know I'm going to try like hell. And, um, I mean, there's, there's 
something you said for effort, there is the yeah. outcome. That's right. Yeah, why not? And so, intent is everything. And and why not think big? I mean, this is the time in the world that you can think big. Yeah, and, we've seen uh, a lot of shakeups happen in a short amount of time. You know, that's right. You that's said right. twenty-five year plan. I, I mean, even two years ago, yeah. the world was a different place. That's right. And not just COVID. I mean, the, of course, that was that had a lot of you know ripples throughout other industries and things like that. But you know. Not to drag it back to supply chain and manufacturing, but I mean, this is a different planet right. in just those scopes, sure. let alone everything else that's gone. We were talking about, I mean, football is different now. That's yeah. right. Everything. Everything's different. Something. Yeah. Well, even like, so, so when you think about supply chain and with all of these things, supply chain, it's a very corporate dry phrase, but what it's it not really, sexy. it's not sexy, but what it really means is how can you bring value to people that are not right next to you and, and, well, maybe right next to you, but that value is coming from somewhere else. And so in order to come up and, and, and target these sort of big goals, you've got to think about supply chain. You've got to think about um, how you make things and the experience for your customers and for your employees, et cetera. And so, so that was, that was, that's, the, that's been my mission for the last three or four years. Is, so how are we going to do this? How, how are you going to change a billion people for well, the better? Well, one thing, uh, you don't sleep much. That's number one. I'm check. uh, checking. Check. I can relate to that yeah. right yeah, now. Check. I got four and a half cool hours last night. <laughs> lucky, <Yeah>. lucky. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, not that I, those are totally bad habits, all of which I have, <laughs> yeah. by the way, Frank. So, uh, so I think... Um, I'm just trying to make it to 50 at this point. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so, so that was, so you, you had this this thesis mm-hmm. a few years back, which is, you know, this, this admirable goal. Right. How did you manifest that into what you're doing now? So that, so going deeper on the thesis. So when I looked at manufacturing, I still look at it this way. Um, I think there's some big, uh, things happening, big sort of macro forces, which are very good. Uh, and by the way, very good for Houston or could be very good for Houston. So number one, um, I think um, the idea of competing based on low low labor rate is diminishing. So every time I would go back to China, we'd have to reprice because people were making more money, you know, which is good. I think that right. it's incredible for a society to have a real middle class and people have you know money to spend on their kids and and parents and and all that other stuff. And so um, I think there's sort of that chase for low labor rate, which is ending. Um, fortunately, I don't yeah, think it only goes so far and yeah. you've got to keep moving your, your manufacturing right, and try to chase you move it. it. You've yeah. got a training curve, you've got a cost of change and everything else. And so I think so that's one big factor. Another big factor is manufacturing technology like 3D printing or additive manufacturing, robotics, material science, AI, uh, all those things. Um, those tools are becoming more accessible for, you know, regular civilians like me. Um, yeah, you can put one on your desk right now. That's right. You know, and so pretty cheap, um, pretty cheap. Yeah. And getting cheaper every day and performance is, is improving every day. So that's the second block of, of the big theme, which is manufacturing technology is improving and being, becoming more accessible. The third and maybe the most important one is that depending on who you ask, there's two to three, maybe 4 billion people across the planet who have yet to start consuming at the per capita GDP level that you and I, the three of us are consuming. And they want shoes and light bulbs and washing machines and continents of people. That's right. They want to have their own podcasts, you know, and those people, billions of people are going to need stuff. Someone has to make all that stuff. Why not us? 
Why not Houston? We've got a lot of history doing it. We've got a lot of history doing it, doing it. And I think here's the other thing. The supply chain of humans making things, especially in this country, is really, really weak. Uh, we've not really, I don't think we've put the right amount of attention or focus on on kids going into manufacturing. And um, I've, I've said this before, so I, I didn't go to... I didn't go to LSU. I actually went to school up in Canada and yeah. around the Toronto area. And one thing that that I'll never forget is they had, you know, they do a good job nationally of promoting blue collar trades, yeah. you know, yep. actually skilled manufacturing. And they they actually had national advertisements go on TV and, you know, the government paid for it to promote kids getting into, they call it college and, yeah. you know, where university is more white collar college is more like tool right. and die and things like yeah. that. And they actually, you know, one of their commercials I'll never forget was they're panning through a parking garage and looking at license plates. And, you know, these are high end cars. You got BMW, mm -hmm. Ferrari and things like that. And, you know, it goes, they're, they're all novelty license plates and one's, you know, doctor, <laughs> lawyer, and then it goes tool and die, the machinist <laughs> and plumber. You know? So they're trying to say that, you know, there is equity in learning these skills. Yeah, sure. For sure. And so they had a yeah. massive push for this and, and it, it, we need that here. Um, we need a lot of people to make this stuff. Um, and Not uh, everybody needs a marketing degree. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, all those things no are valuable. <laughs> yeah. We need all of that. Yeah. We need all of it. I, I think there's, there's the, we were just talking before we started recording, there's, there's a shortage of talented, committed, hardworking, good people mm -hmm. you know, that are good to work around. So be those things. If you're those things, there are lots of people like me and you guys looking for you. you know? So be, be that be that person and so um, we're all on the lookout for highly capable people I, I'm there's telling no you, yeah. shortage you know i know that there's a lot of people out of work and people looking but if you can just take a task and run with it and execute it i know or know when to stop and ask for questions sure. that's I, I can teach anything else but if you can do that that's a skill i can't teach it's a lot of common sense i mean mm -hmm. at the end of the day and effort like you said um so we don't have enough people who can make things. Um, so my personal view is that automation, robotics is an absolute necessity um, because we don't have enough people. Now we should have more people, but we don't have enough. So I think so. Armed with sort of the the my my personal purpose and my moonshot of helping a billion industrial workers, and these three big macro factors that I think are at play and unfolding. I thought, okay, I want to go deep into the world of um, anything industrial, anything manufacturing oriented, anything supply chain, any of those things. And so, um, so that's really what my time is nowadays is focused on building companies that are uh, in that space. And um, so the current company, because I really want to drill into yeah, this. Yeah, Alchemy Industrial. So Alchemy Industrial, is, we launched that in the summer of 2020. You know, so right in the middle of a pandemic. Good time. Pandem yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Why not? Yeah. yeah. We're going to get better. Yeah. I mean, think about all the businesses that were probably launched in, in uh, the Great Depression, the last one, 29. Yeah. Probably lots of them. And so, you know, I think in many ways that's a great time to, to launch something. For one thing, you can buy things less expensively. True. And, you know, there's a lot of advantages to doing it. So we raised um, some seed capital with some great partners um, and launched it about six months ago now. And so what does Alchemy Industrial do? So at its heart is it's a contract manufacturing business. So we make stuff for other people. Um, we make it using um, a variety of technologies like additive manufacturing and robotics and things like that. Um, we, we like to think that we, one of the things that we do that's unique is that we really spend a lot of time with our customers trying to figure out what is the value that they're trying to create in the world for their customers. And and then we design our manufacturing processes around that. So it's not just give us a drawing and we'll make a thousand of them. I mean, that's 
that's part of it. That's part of manufacturing. But there's it's, plenty of other people that do that. Plenty of other people that do that and do it really, really well. Mm-hmm. And we're probably not going to do that well. And and so what we think about is give us an entire product to make and we'll figure out all the supply chain. We'll figure out all the manufacturing. We'll figure out all the reverse logistics. If you have warranty issues that you need to deal with, we want to do that all for somebody and just wrap our hands around uh, the product. And so... Um, so that's what Alchemy Industrial is doing. We've made some investments in 3D printing or additive manufacturing. So I'd, I'd like to touch on that because that, sure. that is something that, you know, the frustrating thing is I'm not smart enough to know, you know, where that that diamond is, yeah. you know, of 3D printing. But I know that that's the future. I yeah, just yeah. Yeah, obviously can't it's figure common. out how to capitalize yeah. on it yet. But yeah. That, yeah. that is, as a subtractive manufacturing expert, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that that's on the horizon as a threat. So well, do you guys see, do metals as well or no, is it just, plastic? No, just uh, plastics. And so p- part of our thesis around uh, 3D printing is um, leveraging material science. And so our view, or my view, I should say, is that 3D printing is more around, it's 80% material science and 20% actual mechanical printing of stuff. So there's, from what I understand, again, I'm an infant when it comes to this mm-hmm. market, but there are there are different processes. Correct. But there's also different, like you said, material science. So there's yeah. different ingredients to so make all right. these. Yeah. And, and there seems to be quite a few of them. Do you, do you think a, a couple are going to emerge out of the pile or is it it's always going to be? I think we need a lot of them. Okay. You know, there's no, I don't think there's one killer 3D printing technology, yeah. Maybe one could emerge. Just depends on the application. Yeah, it's just like, you know, sometimes you need a lathe, sometimes you need a mill, sometimes you need injection molding. Um, I think we'll continue to need all of those things. Um, Just keep in mind that two to three billion people that need a lot of stuff and lots of different kinds of stuff. We need all of it. We need all of it. We need more than we have now. And so... What do you imagine the landscape in that particular uh, manufacturing discipline is going to look like in 10 years? I think it's going to be radically different. I think the people that work in it have to be ra- radically different, um, especially what you know what we might consider a machinist or a shop floor person today. And I'll use a phrase that one of one of our guys has used, and so I'll borrow it from him, um, where he he said he's a machinist, um, and he said that in the past the machinists were the instrument players in the orchestra. In the future, the machinist has to be the conductor and the robots and others are the, are the instruments, mm-hmm. which I think is a wonderful way to it's look at it. That's a mindset shift. That's a mindset shift, which means we still need machinists and pipe fitters and welders and all those other incredible crafts. Um, so that's going to be one of the changes I think is going to happen. I think... This is less doing more coordination. I almost. think so, yeah. But you need the, you need the coordination done by people know that, who know they're doing. Right. Because robots, robots are dumb, you know, they, thank goodness for now. Um, And um, unless you watch those Boston Dynamics, is it Boston Dynamics? It's frightening. It is frightening. The the dog that, The dog that runs like 29 miles an hour. They have the one that jumps now too. Yeah, I'm not happy about that. Not looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm not happy about that. That robotic dystopian Uh, future. I think they've come out with pretty enough movies to where that could potentially go. I I, I kind of believe Terminator is a documentary from the future. It is a documentary, yeah. Yeah, someone someone probably should have watched that. So you're that. part of the problem. But uh, happily so, <laughs> happily so, and so yeah. I never thought it would happen to me. Smiles nice enough here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Sick reference. Exactly. Well, yeah. Well done. Hat tip on that one. I like that one. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Education comes through that's right. finally. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so I think it's going to be uh, different kinds of people, different kinds of technology. I think the most profound technology uh, to pay attention to is material science. 
It's like it's like your boring uncle that comes to Thanksgiving, but mm. he's the one that pays for all the meals. Right. You know, and uh, and so material science, I think, is that it's uh, not to get hyper geeky, but I guess I will get hyper geeky. When you look at human innovation throughout human history, the limiting factor and the catalytic factor was always material science. So I guess you could expand that. There's a reason that the ages are determined by, by what metals right. we use. That's right. Right. Yeah, it's all material science. It is. You yeah. Know, uh, you, have, you have bronze age, iron age, and now we're in, I guess, silicon age. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and Houston, I think, uh, we've got a remarkable opportunity. I don't know if you guys saw this announcement about two months ago. Um, the Welch foundation announced a hundred million dollar, um, funding for a material science institute that's going to be based here in Houston. Excellent. It's going to be so amazing. I think it, the whole plan is to, to attract PhD level scientists to Houston that, you know, are like Nobel laureate quality uh, types of scientists. And I think the idea there is to, to find new materials and then commercialize them right here in Houston. That's exciting. Right here in Houston. And so, um, so I think material science 10 years from now is going to be remarkably different. I think the, the concept of intelligent materials is just getting going materials that, so think about this, what is manufacturing? Manufacturing is organizing atoms. Yep, that's what that's it core, is. Right? Yeah, and um, and so that's the thing to get better at is how do you organize atoms? Now, some of the organization is done by the machines we use. Could be, it could be a lathe or a mill or or an injection mold. It could be additive manufacturing or whatever. But it's still organizing those atoms. Material science is organizing them at the atomic level and creating performance in a way that we can't even think, even think about. So let's, let's think about an example. Let's say that, um, let's take the room that we're sitting in or the building that we're in right now. So this building, big building, has probably a pretty remarkable HVAC load on it, and especially in July in Houston. I mean, we are pumping you know, cold air in here and, and, and uh, consuming a lot of electricity to do that. I would argue that most of that electricity used is, goes into losses in the building. Sure. You know, it's leakage, it's whatever, you know, it's inefficiencies. So what if someone came up with a material that, that reduced um, heating or cooling losses by 80%? I mean, that would pay for yourself, right? That's transformative, right? right? Um, for a lot of different ways. I mean, not only, you know, that, that helps to... The property owners, that's but right. you know that that helps be more efficient on the power grid. That's right. All, of all of it. The cascading effect is right. pretty remarkable. That's just one example, and I think you could keep on. You could do this thought exercise around material science with almost anything that we use now, and and how can we make it better? And I think even what's more exciting is that what about the products that none of us have even envisioned? And what if we could, we could invent those products right here in Houston? So think about what Houston has in terms of our supply chain. Uh, we've got people who know how to make real stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say that no one on the planet knows how to make real stuff and ship it all over the world like we do right here in Houston. Yeah, and we've been to doing remote places. To remote places. And, and yeah. very you know, highly technical Exactly, things. yeah, exactly. Hard things. So we know how to put stuff on a flatbed and ship it. Yeah. Um, um, we've got... The, the, the chemical industry has wonderful supply chains of all the chemicals you could dream of right here in Houston. We've got an incredible port so we can bring stuff in and out, uh, access the Gulf of Mexico uh, and beyond. We've got people, um, engineers and, and pipefitters and machinists and all those folks that know how to make things. 
I think we have a general business community that, that is open to innovation and open to doing things. I mentioned Doug Mathera, you know, when I, when I was a baby engineer, there's a, there's a thousand Doug Matheras out there. And, and so, so the time is right. So if you couple this coming spectacular wave of manufacturing demand with, with manufacturing technology, with not chasing low labor rates, with what we have in Houston, I think Houston is poised to become the global leader of manufacturing. I have never been more optimistic, at least in the past 18 months than I am now. Thank you. <laughs> we should be. That's great. We should yeah, be. Huge. Uh, it, it takes great brain power. It takes commitment. It takes people who, in their own way, not that my way is the only way. It's absolutely not. My way may not even be the best way, but it is a way um, to say, let's go build this. Let's go build for the world right here. We can do it. We should do it. I would be heartbroken if we didn't do it. So to me, to me, this is a generational opportunity. So getting back to your question 10 years from now, in 10 years, Houston should be well on its way to be the global leader of advanced manufacturing or any kind of manufacturing. Um, and there are other things that are happening. I, I'm involved with a nonprofit called TXRX Makerspace here in Houston. Um, and TXRX led the development of a, an incredible project called the East End Maker Hub. It's in Edo. I've heard of that. It, yeah. You, yeah. Your, your listeners, if you're in Houston, should check it out. I'd I, love I, to I take did. you I guys out there. I, I couldn't add well enough to. Well, we be should part bring them club. on. We should bring them on. Let I them would love tell it. a story. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, the East End Manufacture Hub is in Edo. So Edo, East Downtown, mm -hmm. is the, the yep. sort of the legacy manufacturing area for Houston. Mm -hmm. Historically, that's where we made stuff. And so Edo is a 300,000 square foot development. Um, in the middle is TXRX, so the nonprofit makerspace. Um, but surrounding it um, is um, is going to be companies that are making stuff. So that's where Alchemy Industrial is. Okay. It's, it's going to be in Edo. We've we've got a space there. We were, we were one of the early tenants into that space. So you've got that happening, and you've got like Generation Park that is not too far from here, which is, which is a, sort of this biotech but life sciences manufacturing type of development. You've got all these things sort of popping up. And um, people like us get to play in this ecosystem. So what would you, there's a lot of, like I said earlier, there's a lot of people out of work. There's a lot of people, you know, coming into the workforce. Yeah, right. What, what would you, any advice for somebody that's listening to this saying, I want to be part of that? Yeah. Well, number one, I say get your ass to Houston. That's step one. If you're already here, um, then reach out to people like me, people like you guys and say, how can I help? What do I need to learn? What value do I need to create? Pick up a wrench, pick up a keyboard, go do something, create value first, do something first. Um, I, I was having a conversation with a young person about um, six months ago um, who, I mean, unfortunately, she was entering in the workforce in a really tough time. Mm -hmm. So she asked me a similar question. And she's not sort of in the manufacturing area, different, different area, but my advice to her was, look, um, what are you passionate about? She told me um, it was actually someone who was interested in supply chain stuff, um, interestingly enough. So I said, go find half a dozen nonprofits for whom supply chain is a thing. They're trying to get food to somewhere. They're trying to get clothes, whatever. The supply chain stuff need to do. Call each of them up and say, I want to volunteer and I want to help do something. Give me your most difficult project. I'll go do it for free. Right. No reason. Hell, you don't get paid now. Right. You know, so you're just sitting at home doing nothing for most of the part. So go do that. 
and have one caveat that I want to present. If it's successful, I want to present that to your board of advisors or board of directors. There's your interview. That's perfect. Don't send resumes. That's going to get ignored. No one's reading resumes. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know some get chewed up by an algorithm right they now. They do, yeah. So. But can you imagine if you did that and you're a 22-year-old person or a 52-year-old person, you've just done a remarkable project for someone, now you're sitting around the table of uh, a board of directors, which, which is going to be made up of business people for the most part. And you get to, you get to hear it. Yeah. Bingo. I mean, how valuable is that, right? Yeah, go do that. I mean, there's nothing standing in your way from doing that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying... You might fail. You might fail. Uh, you might fail. But you'll learn. You will. And and um, and that's probably one out of a thousand people that would actually do something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so... Um, and, and I tell people, you know, I, I know a few people that unfortunately have hit a rough spot. And, you know, I said, go volunteer anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good for you. Life is networks, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and at a minimum, you're going to meet more people. Yeah, I think, you know, so I think it's, it's also tough. Let's say if you're, you're a mother of three kids and, you know, you're, you're worried about your bills and, and mortgage payment and health insurance. I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of dispense high and mighty advice like I just did to that woman. But I think um, even for that person... Um, as a new parent, by the way, there is nobody I respect more than single mothers. I can't imagine doing this by myself. I mean, really, gig. I can't. Yeah, so. yeah, it's a tough gig. And so, you know, I think for people like that, we we in the business community have to find people like that that have the heart and soul to do something and fi- give them some way to onboard with us in some small way. Um, even if it means um, here's a small project and maybe it's not a lot of money or, or it only lasts a week or two, we all have stuff that we need to get done. Mm-hmm. Surely we can create a project that, that it's worth investing five grand to get something really important done in our business. You find that person and say, I want you to do it. And so it's mm-hmm. also incumbent upon us as business leaders to look for people like that. None of us can impact more than a handful of people. Right. But what if, what if most of us thought that way and, and what could that mean? And it only takes a few chain links down and you've got a billion people. It, it, that's right. That's right. And so um, none of this stuff is easy, but um, it's worth it, though. So where do you go look for people? Look, I mean, I t- I, it's hard to find great people. It is. Um, yeah, I, I, we've looked before and, you know, we've, we've got a pretty substantial network, I would think. Yeah. And it's still it's hard. That's that's well. That's so I think you got to put your bat signal up. And um, and your bat signal is going to uh, attract the right kind of Batman for you. And so part of this is my putting my bat signal up for people who love to make stuff. And so my hope would be that someone's listening to this and says, hey, that sounds really cool. And I think I'd love to do that and I can contribute. Well, then they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. And So you know, if somebody does want to reach out to you, how would they? Academy Industrial, I guess. Academy Industrial or LinkedIn. I'm sorry. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, me, yeah me, me, message me on LinkedIn. That's a good way of doing it. Um, I don't, that's really the only social media channel that I have is on LinkedIn. You're not TikTok in these days? I'm, of course, you know, I have a, I have a very sick TikTok you got a burner profile. Account. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't, right? Who doesn't? Yeah. My, right now, my 17 year old was listening to this right now. He'd be horrified. Absolutely horrified. 
I had a conversation with him the other night about TikTok, and I was, you know, I sound like a total old man. Oh, that's none of that's valuable, you know. So, which I still believe. I, uh, I I try to stay hip, as the kids say. I think still. Yeah, you're um, a hip guy. I figured. Uh, you're a hip guy. And so I, I looked into TikTok, and and you know, I I'm not gonna lie, I had fun, right? Yeah. Just scrolling. It's a great way to sink and burn up an hour that you it could, is, could yeah. do something better on. But yeah. uh, I was kind of thinking, how do I make this a uh, uh, either an intellectual or a business account. And I, yeah. I, I had a dead end pretty quick. My, my daughter's in a, in a constant state of TikTok. I mean, yes. just like her hands don't stop moving. We're at the right. grocery store. She's exactly. doing it in front of the TikTok frozen food aisle. Why like, not? You probably do that too, though. I mean, you can tell I mean, she, it. Uh, she obviously it. asked me, Dad, come on, join yes. in. And I, I can't do the moves. No? It's going to so. be, be, I think, fantastic when 20, 30 years from now, business leaders and, and you know, echelons of the community have, you know, you can go back and check out their TikTok. You check out their TikTok yeah. account. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There's a whole bunch, bunch of people getting fired when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my guess. So, so reach out to me via LinkedIn. Yep. I think that's a good way to do it. If you go to alchemyindustrial.com, there's a there's an email sign up and there's a contact us there too. But I'm, I'm I think I'm easy to find. I would like to actually go check out what you have happy going to, on. Yeah, happy to host you. I might uh, might weasel my way in for a tour at some point. We're happy to do that at any given time. So, um, so yeah, have them reach out and you know I think I think that's that's the best thing. So well, we've successfully burned up an hour of a very <laughs> useful time for you. Oh, this is um, great. It doesn't feel like an hour, but yeah. uh, thanks for for kind of guiding us through this. I think you, I you have it. a great message. Thank you. I feel inspired. I, I like I said, I'm, I'm more optimistic now than I was when I walked in the building. So that's great. Definitely. I hope that this this has that effect on everybody else. Yeah. Um, I am any too. other parting words of wisdom well, I, before I, you go? I would say this one final thing. Um, um, it, it is at the risk of sounding too philosophical. Um, it is worth making something beautiful for the world, whatever your tiny corner of it is. And maybe, maybe today for you, that is when you go pick up coffee at Starbucks, you look at that barista like a human and ask them how they're doing and really ask them how they're doing. Um, that may be enough to create something positive. And, or maybe you do something much bigger than that, but it's always worth creating something beautiful in the world, especially when you're struggling. And I have down days too, and, and we all do. Um, to me, that's the antidote. And um, Leave it better than when you found it. That's right, in the smallest way, in the smallest way possible you can. You know? And so that would be my parting message. Excellent. Do something beautiful. Love it. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you for coming on. I love and, this. And, and we'd love to have you back and, and see where your uh, journey is. I'd love to do you. that. And, and congratulations on the podcast. Thank I'm you. glad that there are people like you doing this. And you guys are creating something beautiful for the world, too. So thank you. I'm happy you're out there. Well, thanks for coming, Rob. Thanks for sitting down. Yeah, and, thanks uh, for having me. Yeah. Go Tigers. Go Tigers, Stop it as always. LSU people for yeah. a little bit. <laughs> I think we have two per season limit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's quite yeah. enough. We're like an Altoid mint <laughs> wherever we go. Curiously strong. Love it. That's a great way to end. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye. If you have any questions, nominations, or suggestions, please reach out to us on the Highly Capable Podcast on LinkedIn or at podcast at Thank you for listening.